standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read verse 9 down through verse 14 this morning. And before I do so, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, gracious Father, come now and bless the reading and explanation, application of your word. Give us the spiritual ears to hear your voice and not mine, not the voice of a man, but the voice of our heavenly mediator. Give us hearts to receive his voice. Lord, transform our thoughts and our lives with this saving word this morning. Help us to understand the need and the the benefit of justification. Lord, how essential it is if one is to be made right before you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I wanna begin reading at verse nine of chapter 18. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, the message this morning is from verse 14. It is what Jesus says about the tax collector after he gives the substance of the parable itself, contrasting the Pharisee with the tax collector, Jesus sums up the parable in verse 14, telling us and teaching those around him, certainly to draw the attention of those who were in his midst that had trusted in themselves and had contempt for others, that only the publican went home justified. Not the Pharisee. I'm sure staggering and shocking those listening because the Pharisees were so highly esteemed. They were known for their religiosity and their strict adherence to the things of God. And yet to hear that that Pharisee did not go to his house justified, I'm sure, staggered his listeners. 
in the context of the chapter, you can see Luke is next going to deal with the rich young ruler. And that's not accidental. Luke seems to be stacking these, uh, uh, the teaching of Jesus on top of each other so that we are just bombarded and inundated with what makes a, a person right before God. And I think all of us this morning can agree with the host of Christian theologians that are worth anything that the greatest question one can ask is how does a guilty sinner become right with a holy God? How How does that happen? How can you take someone who is guilty and justify them? How does that work? What does that look like? The Pharisee, and just to recap a little bit of the parable, for those of us that need some catching up, I mean, Jesus is certainly contrasting the two. One who felt as if he needed no justification, that he already was justified because he was such a great person. And therefore, he, even though it's not a true prayer, because even though he starts off the prayer in the teaching of Jesus, you know, he addresses God, but the prayer isn't about God. It's not directed toward God. It's about how good he is and how he's not like others, that he should be accepted that he deserves to be accepted in his own mind. He deserves to be justified. He deserves to be viewed as righteous because of his perceived character. Obviously, he's very ignorant about the word of God. You can go back and listen to the sermon where I Ask the question, how can someone who has the oracles of God, who has the teaching of the, of the word of God, has the, the, the history and tradition of the Old Testament scriptures, how does one become so diluted and deceived? Well, we know that our own dead hearts gravitate to exalting ourselves naturally excusing ourselves, couple that with the twisting of the word of God, couple that with false teaching, heresy, and you've got a mess. And you've got a very, very ugly, unbecoming situation where this religious leader can stand up and in a very immodest way, because there's He's drawing attention to himself. Look at me, for I am worthy of being right with God. Well, the publican is the opposite of that. And that's the design of the parable. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's a master teacher. He wants us to compare ourselves with both of these 
worshipers. The publican stands as far off from that place of prominence in the temple where they are as they can get. I'm unworthy to be up front. I will sit in the back. I don't want to draw any attention to myself. I'm unworthy to have attention drawn to me. And if I do draw attention to myself, it's only to point out that I am unworthy of the grace and favor of God. He beats his chest. He doesn't even raise his eyes to heaven in the shame of his own guilt and sin. And he just begs God for mercy. And recognizes in his prayer that he is not just a sinner among sinners, but I am the sinner, O God. I think there is in the parable a highlighting of how we have to approach God. We don't come to God going, Lord, you know I'm a sinner. But I'm not as big a sinner as this man or this woman. or You know, I, I don't commit the same sins as that group over there. No, I'm a sinner, but I'm not like all those sinners over here. I'm a better sinner than they are. That's not what he does. And I think that definite article there is, that's that's the purpose of it. Jesus so masterfully puts it there. I am the sinner. Lord, there's no reason to look anywhere else. I am the sinner. And my sins are like, a mountain between you and I. And they keep me from having peaceful, restful fellowship with you. They're in the way. They're an obstacle. And then Jesus makes that point right there in verse 14, which is our focus this morning. In that very first clause, he says, I tell you, Jesus is highlighting, he is emphasizing in an emphatic sense. This is what I've been telling you. This is what I've been preaching. It's this present tense, ongoing action that Jesus says, this has been the the core of of all of my gospel preaching that if, if you are going to be right before God, if you're going to have this favor of rest and blessing, you have to be justified. And Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. What is this justification? If you were asked that question this morning, my Christian friend, could you answer it? What would you say? Now, hopefully, if you've memorized the catechism, you would be able to, you know, bring that up and it would be a great answer in fact we're going to look at those points in a little bit but I just I want us to spend a little time just working on our understanding of what this justification is and that when Jesus says that this man this publican 
this tax collector who was seen as a vile sinner among his brethren because of their greediness, their willingness to extort more money than they should from, well, his neighbors who probably, like many of us, just didn't have it and would put them in great poverty by taking more than he was supposed to. And that's how Rome had set it up. That's how they were supposed to make their living. Rome winked at, did not regard what they were doing as bad because what they would say is, listen, here's what you collect for us. Anything above that's yours. Now, when you give the tax collector the power of the sword, along with that, you've got, you, you, you've got a beast, you've got a, you've got a problem. Right? Like giving IRS agents guns. So they would go out and based upon how they would extort the money was basically the degree of their wealth. And most of them lived fairly well off. So they were considered to be the very bottom of society among Israel because of that. And yet, this publican finds himself going up to the temple. For whatever reason, he had come in contact with the preaching of the gospel. He had come in contact with someone telling him that he was sinful and that he was not right with God. And he had fallen under deep conviction. He had heard this message and had fallen under deep conviction and had found himself going up to the temple. And in that moment, in that experience, he begins to pray and weep and beat his chest and it, it just, just to exude this humility that was flowing out of the work of the Spirit in his heart. And Jesus then tells his listeners and us here today, that he went home justified. Now justification, brothers and sisters, so that we understand it, is a legal term. It's a word that belongs in the context of a courtroom, legal with other legal terms. Like guilt would be a word appropriate for the courtroom setting. Pardon would be a word appropriate for the courtroom setting. And we need to fundamentally understand that justification is not something that is done in the individual. It's not something that God does in them. It is something that God declares about them. It's a forensic term. It's a legal term. It is something that is declared. And that's important to recognize. And that's really the difference between the Reformed faith and what we call Protestant Christian, the Protestant Christian faith against Roman Catholicism. 
where the Catholics want to hold to that this is a grace that God does in the person, that God somehow infuses a righteousness into them. And the reformers rejected that understanding and said, no, 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 no. According to the Bible, and we're going to look at some passages here in a moment. According to the Bible, it's not something that is, it's not a work done in the person. It is something declared about the person. Well, let's look at some scripture just in Luke here. Let's back up to chapter 16 and verse 15. I'm going to read verse 14. And 15, it says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him, that is Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Now, what does Jesus mean when he uses this legal word in applying it to these Pharisees who are mocking Jesus? What Jesus is simply saying is that they declare their own innocence. That's not something done in them. They're not doing anything in them. What are they doing? They're confessing, they're declaring, they're confessing their own innocence. They're saying, Jesus, you're wrong about us. We're declaring our own innocence. And that's what Jesus says. You justify yourself. What do we do when we want to justify ourselves with our wives when we're in an argument, our husbands when we're in our, our parents to, uh, you know, children, children to parents? What do we do? We, when we talk about justifying ourselves or when we're scolded for, you're just justifying your actions. What are you doing? What are you guilty of? You're declaring your innocence. And you're declaring why you're innocent. So it's not an act in you, it's something that's being declared. Let's back up to chapter 7, Luke 7, verse You can see in the context in verse 24, it says, then the messengers of John had left. So we're, we're talking about John the Baptist. But look at verse 29, it says, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So what is this? word mean in this verse 29 what does he say and he says that as the people went out to hear John the Baptist preaching what did he preach what did John the Baptist preach repentance repent and turn to God from your sins what he is saying is that the people went out and heard John's message and they said and declared that God was justified through the message of John that what John was saying was true of them. That God had justified his, 
himself. And they had repented. They were repenting of their sins. That's what he's saying here. When all the people in the tax collector heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. How was this justice brought to them? In the declaration of John's preaching. John is announcing to the people that they are guilty of sin before God. And now the people, having received his message, declare God as just. God was just in sending John the Baptist to preach a sermon, many sermons of what? Repentance. Turn to God. You can see the declarative nature of this term. But that's not the only place. If you will turn to um, the Old Testament is very similar. It's nothing uh, at all different if you go to Deuteronomy 25. Now, this is a very important distinction. I hope you will see as we, you know, move along that this is something that's very important and that it's, these are distinctions that we need to make. That this justification is not something done inside of us, but it's something declared about us. You can see the term used in 25, Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. If there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Now, what's the point here? Well, the point that Moses is making in that verse is that this, that judges, human judges are to sit and declare those who are innocent as justified and those who are guilty as condemned. And so they are to judge the case and make declarations. The judge doesn't do anything to the person. He declares something about the person. The judges declare them either innocent or guilty, justified or condemned. Look at Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs 17 and verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now, what is this verse teaching us about justification or about this term? Well, notice, he who justifies the wicked. How does someone, how does a person justify the wicked? By declaring the guilty innocent. By declaring the wicked as righteous. It's a declaration. Notice how both of these are wrong. When one declares the wicked as right, that's an abomination to God, just as the one who declares the righteous wicked. Someone who is doing right. Someone who is, you know, 
judged by this standard and is keeping the standard and 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 should be uh, viewed as righteous or innocent is condemned. The writer of Proverbs says that that is an abomination to God. That when we declare things that are not so, that is the wicked is righteous, that's an abomination to God. When we declare the innocent wicked, it's an abomination to God. Now you don't have to, it's not a stretch of your imagination, right? Your intellect to see that as a major sin today in our own culture, right? And you can see how God is being provoked when the wicked are declared righteous. It's an abomination to God. And as the innocent are condemned, both are abominations. There are other places. I'm just going to read these two. You can jot them down in your notes. We're not going to turn there. But even Psalm 19, verse 9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. That means whatever the Lord declares to be true is true. Whatever the Lord declares to be right is right. Whatever the Lord declares to be wrong is wrong. It's just that simple. This word has to, this word addresses this legal term. It addresses a courtroom situation where God acts as judge. He declares right from wrong. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. What's he saying? Well, how, do you, how are we to judge righteously? By declaring what's right. That means when we see those who are needy being taken advantage of, we are to declare that is wrong. We are to speak up. We are not to be mute. We are to declare their rights for them. We are to defend them because they can't defend themselves. A mute person can't speak for himself. He can't cry out to his brethren. We're to do it for him. We are to declare their abuse. That's the term. That's what the word means. What is Jesus saying then when he says that this man went down to his house justified? He is saying that God had declared this man righteous. That God had declared the publican pardoned of his sins. What a beautiful picture. So that's what justification is. Now let's look at the parts of justification so that we understand it in this context. So we're talking about this declaration. We're talking about this legal term. 
And that's the way the confession actually teaches it. It it talks about justification being an act of God's free grace. That is, it's where God acts, not us. And if you look at the verse, if you look at verse 14 in the Greek grammar, it, it, it's where it talks about, and this man went down to his house justified. That verb there is in the passive sense, meaning that it's the publican that was, that had, was de- something was declared about him. He doesn't declare this himself about himself. He's not going home going, I'm good. I'm right before God. I did all the things I was supposed to do. It's a passive verb, meaning that as he went home, Jesus is saying that God, our heavenly father, had now declared him justified. It was a declaration said about him. Now, there are five things we're going to look at about justification. All of these come out of the shorter catechism. It's a simple explanation, but it's plenty for us this morning. First, we need to understand that justification is an act of God. He's the source of it. God is the one and only the one that declares anyone justified. If one is not declared justified, then they still remain condemned in the covenant of works that all men are born into through Adam. But in the covenant of grace, if we are going to be those true participants of the covenant of grace, then we would seek to have our fathers declare us as justified. God is the source of justification. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. I know I'm saying a lot of these things over and over and over, and that's on purpose because we need to have, this is such an essential truth. This is is one truth that we must understand if we're going to rightly understand our salvation and, and be saved. Again, we don't want to slip into error here, but we must understand that there is nothing that you can do for your own justification. That was the Pharisee's problem. He thought he justified himself. It's something that only God can do. Verse 30. And these, talking about these, who are these? These are the predestined ones. These are the ones that God foreknew before the foundation of the world. You back up all the way to 29. These are the ones that God, before the foundation of the world, put his electing love on. That's who these are. And these whom he predestined, He also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, who's the subject? Who's the one acting here? Who's the principal actor? God is. How do we know this? Notice how under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look at all the pronouns, how Paul uses it. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he's talking about God. You won't miss it. You can't miss it. 
He's glorifying God. He's telling us that God is the source of man's predestination and his justification and his sanctification and his eternal glorification. It's all God. Salvation, as the Bible says, is of the Lord. Is of the Lord. So you, we must get this straight Brothers and sisters, when we look at the publican, we cannot fall into that trap and say, well, he, he shed just the right amount of tears. He beat his chip just enough to favor, to bring favor to God. He, 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 he showed just enough modesty and humility to woo God to, well, act on his behalf. That is sinful and a twisting of the scriptures. He could do nothing to save himself. That's why he was beating his chest. God, have mercy. He was declaring, Lord, I need mercy. I'm unable to do anything to save myself. I can't do it. I can't do it. I need mercy. There's another aspect when it talks about God working on behalf of justifying sinners that it's called, it's an act of God's free grace. Now, what is this free grace? Well, I just explained it to you. If it's free grace, it, it's not earned. That's the argument Paul makes in Galatians when he says, listen, if you could work out these things, then it wouldn't be free grace. If you worked for it, it would be payment. But it's not. It's of grace. Grace is neither earned, it's not deserved, it's free. And we need to remember that. If you go back to Romans 8 and you think about what Paul is saying there, and he, and, he, and he takes that salvation, that justification, all the way back to before the foundation of the world. That's the argument that Paul uses in Romans 10 and 9 about, well, the elect, about Esau and Jacob. Way back then, you did not do one thing good or evil, right? Nothing had been done, you didn't exist. You only existed in the, in the foreknowledge of God at that point. And it's at that point that God had predestined all who would come to know and love and serve him and be justified to be the recipients of free grace. It's not by human merit or human ingenuity. There's nothing, beloved, that one person can do to earn the favor of God. God is a free spirit. And then again, what does that mean? It means that God is not bound to being manipulated by anything we say or do. You know, we can, we can manipulate one another, can't we? 
We, we know what to say to one another. We know how to, how to f- phrase our conversations. We know what to, to do to either incite anger or, or, or even gladness or all of these things. Because God's not moved by that. God acts freely because he acts because he wants to act. And here's the beloved, here's the glorious thing of that. God saved because he wanted to save Man sought out his own devices and destroyed himself, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy. God, who is rich in mercy. He acted, and he is a saving God because he chose to save sinners. The second thing is, what does this justification do That is, it's a declaration. But what does it accomplish? Well, it accomplishes the removing and absolving one of guilt. It pardons them, if you will. It's a declaration that one is now justified. He's no longer guilty of sin. They are now pardoned of their sin. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. What's he saying in verse 23? He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, all are condemned then. But what does verse 24 say? Being justified as what? A free gift of his grace. A free gift of grace. But it doesn't stop there. Yes, it's free and it's a grace toward the sinner, but it's not without merit. It's not without substance. And that's where Christ comes in. And of course, I'm going to get to that point. It's founded upon the active obedience of Christ, his righteousness. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's a free gift of grace to the sinner through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. That's the publican. Have mercy on me, O God. I cannot save myself. And all I'm good at is piling sin upon sin. That's what I'm good at. I'm good at sinning. But the free grace of God given to the publican through the mercy of God. He has imputed to him, accounted to him that future obedience of Jesus Christ because Jesus had not yet died yet. And he was justified. Look at Romans chapter four. In speaking of Abraham, 
Look at verse 3, it says, or verse 2, he says, now notice, here's a, a, the Apostle Paul, and what's he doing? He's talking to these New Testament believers, and he wants to teach them about faith. He wants to teach them about justification. Why didn't he pick a new, why didn't he pick the publican? Why didn't he pick a New Testament saint? No, he goes all the way back to Abraham, which is very important. Meaning that in the Old and New Testaments, there is no distinction in salvation. All men have always come by the free grace of God. The Old Testament saints did not work their way to heaven, as some teach. Look at what he says. For if Abraham, verse 2, was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Sound like the Pharisee. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but, it, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And what do we see here? We see that there is this, this pardoning of sin, that there is this declaration, there is this imputation, there is this accounting that the sinner was once guilty, but now they are seen as righteous in God's sight. Now listen to me, brothers and sisters. If, if you're here this morning and, and you, don't, you don't really believe you're a great sinner, this doesn't mean anything to you. It, it won't. Why? Because the message of God's free grace and justification is only meaningful to those who have come under the weight of their sin, like the publican. I'm not saying you have to cry for days. I'm not saying you have to beat your chest. But there is an experience that comes with a sinner that comes under the guilt of their sin, and it's a weight. It's a weight. The doctrine of justification by God's free grace is music to the sinner's ear and no one else's. Because men and women in their depravity and in the sinfulness of their own hearts love the idea of somehow working with God to save themselves. And that person, that person will not inherit eternal life. That Pharisee went to his house unjustified, thinking he was right with God. And that's going to be the same one in Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. 
Brothers and sisters, we'll end with this. The only way you can come under that kind of guilt is to understand what sin is. Sin is a violation of the law of God. The law of God is the perfect standard of moral obedience and character. And the truth is we have violated it in every way. It's not just what we do on the outside. Brothers and sisters, even when we do good things, we do it for the wrong reasons. And let's just say that we could spend the next two hours being consistent and even perfect. Well, what about tomorrow? See, that standard is perpetual. That standard never changes. That standard is ongoing forever. That standard is to be met every second of every day of your life. And none of us can do so and have done so. When we understand the pure moral nature and responsibility that God's law requires of us and we come to understand that and we begin to look at our motivations, our discernment, when we begin to look at our actions and we begin to look at how we talk, what we think, what we listen to, we can only at that point understand like the publican, woe is me. Have mercy on me. I am the sinner. And only God can justify. And then we're going to talk about over the next couple of Sundays the rest of the verse and how the manifestation of his humility was a manifestation of faith and repentance. That faith being the instrument that latches on to that righteousness that only God can declare you to have in Christ. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, there's been so, there's been a lot said here this morning, and we are talking about this essential, important doctrine of justification. How a sinner is accepted before a holy God. Lord, I pray that what I've said here this morning has not confused anyone, that what has been said has, has been able to strike at the heart of all that are here, and that we would mull over, we would contemplate, we would think upon these things, and Lord, we would make them our truth, the truth of your word, and we would begin, O oh Lord, like the publican, begin to, if, if we haven't ever, begin to feel the weight of our own sin and that you would begin drawing us to yourself. And we would pray this in Christ's name, amen.